One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome to the Writer's Routine podcast. Uh, now, I'm not in the studio today. Uh, I'm on a portable recorder, so it means the audio of all my talky bits right now might be a little bit iffy in places, but it doesn't affect the cheesy coffee shop jazz. Yes, welcome to the Writer's Routine podcast. My name is Dan Simpson, and yeah, I'm at home today, not in the studio. I've got to do on a little portable recorder uh, in my front room. Uh, So yeah, audio might drop in and out. Don't worry about the quality of that. The quality of content is still ace, so we're all good. Uh, Also, the lights have gone in my lounge, and I can't find any spare bulbs. So I'll probably strain my eyes just a little bit. My mum will be pleased with that, no doubt. Anyway, let's get on with it. This is the Rise Routine podcast where we chat to some of the best authors that are around today, right? And it's all about how they work. It's about how they organise their time and their creativity uh, for maximum efficiency, I guess, every single day. Because they've not got a normal nine to five. So we'll find out how they manage it. You know, writing for a living is kind of the dream. And today we're talking to someone who's made it come true. It's the author of a brand new book on gender equality. Massive thanks, by the way, for downloading the show. Uh, Whether it's because I've seen you in the street and I won't let you move past me until you show me that you've downloaded the podcast. Whether you're one of my best mates and you've taken pity on me. Whether you're one of my family and you want to make sure I'm actually doing something with my time in London. Or whether you're interested in writing and you've seen it uh, on your podcast stores. Cannot thank you enough for that. Now, the next thing I would love you to do is to go onto the iTunes podcast store uh, and subscribe to the show. And that way you don't have to put any energy into re-downloading it in the future. It will automatically flood your podcast inbox every Friday. Fingers crossed. No matter how you get it, if you subscribe, you will hopefully get that. And then leave us a review because that's the only way we're going to get loads more people to hear the show, uh, get involved as well, and to be helped out by all the authors that we will interview uh, is if you leave a review because that makes it, you know, get higher in the podcast store and all of that jazz so get onto there get onto itunes leave us a review say something nice bad ones uh leave them at the door don't really care about those keep them to yourselves also five stars would be really handy too uh, and then other people will start to know about the show that is one thing you can do to show that you are enjoying the show uh, get to the itunes podcast store and leave us a review our guest on the writer's routine this week is david devere 
And he is a man who has lived a very busy life. He's worked in academia for over a decade. He, he moderates Oxford University exams. Oh, someone's doing very well. Uh, he worked with the Met Police as well as an armed officer. He designed boats. Get this. He went from being a millionaire to homeless practically overnight. No, I know, right? I often think I'm sounding a bit too excited by that. I mean, it's fine. Don't worry. Uh, I'm not being too mean. It's all sorted out now. And it, and it did give him the time to write this book. So it's a fascinating tale. And we'll talk a bit more about that in the conversation later on. Uh, we also find out how he wrote his new book. Now, it's called Tale of the Tigris. And it's a wide range of views in one text all about gender equality. Now, there are no real opinions in there. No one says what they really think, if it's this way, if it's that way. It's more of an encyclopedia on it. You get to hear about the big influences on equality through history. We find out about the differences between genders biologically, in case you really need to know that. Now, it's a bit more than what you think there. It's like brains and stuff. We learn about how equality is likely to go uh, and where it may move on from here. Now... I know what you're thinking, right? The problem with this chat is going to be it's two white men talking about gender equality. What do we really know about it? And I was very aware of that uh, when we sat down to do the chat. But I think we are both self-aware enough to kind of realise the limitations of that. And I ask him about why it's taken him as a man to write this particular book on this conversation. Also, we've got another weird and wonderful writing routine from history uh, with Distinguished Diaries. In a little bit today, it's Joseph Heller off of Catch-22. Yeah, that's a bit later. First, let's get into it then. My chat with David DeVere, uh, author of the new book Tale of the Tigress, all about his writing day. There isn't uh, an absolute pattern. I Because I work from home, I have the... Um, the ability and uh, it's a blessing really to be able to write when I want to. I used at one time, and I still have a piece of paper and a pen next to the bed so that when I have ideas I um, I could write them down then. But what I tend to do, unless it's freezing cold in the flat, is to go and sit in front of the computer and put that stuff down or at least write it down by hand because I find the more ways I see and record stuff the more likely it is to go into my head and you need it in your head to shuffle it around because writing a a book on uh, something which is non-fiction a book like mine is very different from writing something which is a non-fiction like the history of world war ii or writing a novel there isn't an obvious sequence so you get all this information and you have got to decide how it's going to go so it's like someone giving you a a deck of cards expecting you to shuffle them with your eyes shut and not only end up with all the cards in the right suits but also in the right order so when someone picks up the book it seems fairly obvious that chapter three carries on from chapter two or it isn't a totally dislocated thing and that's very different but how long are are you writing for just on an average day we'll say do you set yourself a goal each day be that words be that time limit spent in in your office absolutely not the writing is um probably well it, it goes in fits and starts because there is so much research everything in the book i try to find three sources for 
of research. So that involves a lot of going on the internet, doing the research, and then picking the bone, the meat off the bones on those. And so often it wouldn't be three, it'd end up being 10, 13, God knows what, and you put them all together. And then it gets to the point where I've got so many bits of paper, I've got to spend time sitting down, going through those bits of paper and sorting them and putting them in order. So the next thing, once I've got that and I've got all these notes, is I just spend time typing them up. And the limit time-wise on that is... I don't know, the threshold of how much your head can stand you sitting in front of a typer and a uh, keyboard typing. Um, so that's the next stage. And then the stage after that is start deciding what goes where, what gets thrown out. And I would suggest that for me, I probably throw out at least half. Let me, let me quickly take you uh, back two stages yep. in, the, in the process. What I find... Uh, odd about the fact you've written this uh, uh, non writing a non-fiction book it's not like a story Absolutely. so it's not like you have the initial idea boy lives under stairs becomes wizard then you can let that you can run away with that yeah, yeah. but you've said you've got filing cabinets full of this research how do you where do you start turning that and then putting it on a page as the book i've got in front of me i think the research sort of dictates it for me in a way um looking at it and trying to decide what comes first and the thing that um, without sort of going through every part of the book what I started off looking at was the relationship between men and women is the important basis on which all this is founded and you have to say well where did that begin and so you're then researching history of people what people have found out about how we used to live through the ages so that then becomes fairly easy in that that is linear looking from the time we literally climbed out of the trees through to what research found last week so that is sort of quite good and that helps to control some of the other stuff because in doing that when you're then looking at the medical uh, chapter you can look back and say well how were minds formed when we first started so if you say when we first started men were uh, the ones that were on their own because they were either out protecting or fighting to keep their family safe or they were out trying to kill something and they were usually alone and being quiet so that's how men were that's how that was and then women, of course, were looking after umpteen children, picking berries, look, you know, doing this, that and the other. And so we can then look at that and say that links and is a mirror of the way we lived. And we can say that when we look at the medical side of it, that is how the brain ended up the way it is. The whole thing started with oh, donkeys years ago with conversations over a coffee in someone's kitchen. It has become all-consuming. I mean, the book itself took about five years of full-time research and writing and rewriting and because there's a, an awful lot of information in there. I've tried throughout the book not to put any opinions in because I don't think that is something I should be doing. It's, in fact, it's something I've strived not to do. What I'm trying to do is have that as a a sort of go-to, a source of information. And it really started with the conversations, these conversations I had with women who had all sorts of thoughts about gender equality, uh, fem feminism, uh, 
all these things were, were questions they had. And as I researched those, they almost put themselves in an order and talking with them because a lot of these were ongoing conversations. I'd talk with them and I would see how our conversations would go and then sort of replicate the answers in the book so that there was a sort of logical progression. And there are things in there because it's very easy if you've got people of a like mind talking about the same thing for there to be no discussion the whole thing goes stale so sometimes there are things in there that are a bit make people a bit uneasy but that's done purposely because in a conversation you want someone to say yeah but what if this is what i find so fascinating about writing non-fiction it is as i say when you when you have a story you can pick up your pen you can run with it you've had to do so much research for this Uh, as you say interviewing hundreds of people how did you know who you wanted to interview and why? It sort of happened um, almost organically. Originally, it was people that I just people that I met socially, and these were in the pre-computer days, so it was sort of pretty hard going, and it was sheets of paper that were stuffed away, and those were they sort of laid dormant for a long time. People got to know that it was a subject I was interested in, and then as computers came along, then it sort of it got bigger and bigger and more and more people got involved and somehow i think women allowed me to talk to them it was a a privilege that they were so honest and open um and sort of word spread that i was safe to talk to i did at one point um when computers came along i thought i was going to have women not wanting to talk to me about some of the intimate things that they did so i thought i would do a questionnaire so that they could take it away with them, fill it in anonymously. I wouldn't have any idea who'd said what, because they would just come back to me completed. And I talked to women about this and said, you know, I've got this, whatever it was, 40-page questionnaire, which was everything from how you were brought up, your relationship with your mother, with your father, with your grandmother, grandfather, school teacher, all the way through to, you know, your your husband, your children, your wife, your children. Um when I'd done this and I showed it to them and started talking, they were sort of saying, well, we're quite happy to sit and talk with you about it. We don't need to do, you know, we'd far rather just have a chat. And so that, although I'd spent a long time doing that questionnaire, although it was the base at the beginning for some of them, in fact, it turned out not to be necessary. I know you've said you wanted to steer clear of opinions in it. Did you know the message that you wanted it to end on? So you'd got from A, you started A, and you got to B, albeit with a lot of words in between. Did you know like that that it was ended because you'd said what you wanted to say? I didn't actually want to say so much as provide information. And I think I've covered just about every aspect when women talk. And I've had this in talking to women subsequently, um, that they feel it does give them... Perhaps not the answers, but it gives the information on which to base their own thoughts. So if you compare it with people looking at politics, they have politicians come along. The politicians will give them a view. So if you're listening to or watching Question Time or something like that, a question is asked. The politician then just gives their party line what they want to say. That's not what the person asking the question or the person listening wants to hear. They want to hear something honest and open and let them make up their own mind. And that's what I've tried to do with that book, so that you can go through it, first of all, 
read it once, get an idea of what it's about, and then know that whenever you need it, you can put your hand on it and you can look through and think, oh, yes, I've forgotten about that. That's interesting, because so-and-so was talking about that. Uh, and that that was the aim of it. And when I thought I'd answered all those questions, that's when I felt, yeah, this is it. You talk about being honest and, and making this a book that just simply provides information. Uh, did you have to think about tone at all when you wrote it, as just the, the tone of voice that the narrative was using in here? One was to do it with humour, um, but then I thought, no, it's, it's too important a subject and that wouldn't fulfil what I felt was wanted. And then I started off doing it almost like an academic book and writing a bibliography of my research as I was writing the chapters. But I was finding that the bibliography was almost as big as the text. <laughs> and I thought, this is stupid. You know, who am, I, who am I pretending I'm being? You know, no Oxford Don is going to look at this and think, oh, here is a wonderful learned yeah. chap. They're going to think here's some, someone pretending to be what they're not. So I got rid of that and I just thought, I'm going to try and make this as readable as possible and just fill it with information. You can pick and choose what you want. Um, there will be people that will be one side of the argument and adamant that they want uh, to have a certain sort of society at the end. There'll be others that will be completely against that and want a different society. But at least by picking that up and looking at information, real information, and to be given nudges of what other people think, then maybe we can have a a civilised, open, wide-ranging conversation about gender equality. And that's not just for women, it's women and men. It's gender equality it's about, not just feminism. We'll get more from my conversation with David Devere in just a sec. We'll talk about his fears over writing the book and also his research into the biological differences between genders, <laughs> which is not as dirty as it sounds, by the way. Right, next, stay there. We will get the writing routine of Joseph Heller. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Right, time for another writing routine from history in our weekly feature, Distinguished Diaries. Today is the author of Catch-22, Joseph Heller. Now, he wrote the book in the evenings after he got back from his work in magazine advertising. Now, if you've read the book, you'll know that he, he was quite scathing of publications like that in America at that time uh, in his novels. Uh, but he loved working there, though. I don't know why he was so critical of them. Uh, he never really had a major issue that he's let anyone know about. Uh, he wasn't a particularly pacey writer, though. He says that he wrote Catch-22 for two or three hours. I won't do the accent, don't worry. Uh, he says he wrote it for two or three hours a night over eight years and even gave up once and started watching TV with his wife. Now, apparently, American TV at that time was like the complete antidote to writer's block. He got so bored so quickly, he got straight back to the writing. Uh, He wrote in longhand as well, on yellow notepads, and he would rework and rework these countless of times before getting them onto a typewriter, finally. He wasn't as compulsive as other writers either. A few weeks ago on Distinguished Diaries, we heard about Maya Angelou's writing routine, and, and she spoke of how she wrote as if she breathed, you know, she just had to get it out there. For Joseph Heller, yeah, not so much. He wrote very slowly over many, many years. He did it and he enjoyed it. He wrote five days a week most of the time, but never a lot. He said he was ambitious, but to call him driven was probably a bit much. Even when he sold the film rights to Catch-22, made loads of money, uh, and he could give up his day job in advertising, he still wrote just as slowly. He worked for a few hours every day, but mostly he spent his time lying down and daydreaming about all of the books that he wanted to write, which is quite comforting, isn't it? You know, if you're struggling writing right now, your idea for a book is is mainly still in your head. You're finding it really hard to get it down on paper. Don't worry. Some of the greatest authors in history kept theirs in their imagination too. We will get another distinguished diary in next week's episode of The Writer's Routine. As always, I need to say a massive thank you to Mason Curry's brilliant book, Daily Rituals. I'm holding it in front of me. It covers the daily diary of everyone that has ever been creative and important. Ernest Hemingway, Albert Einstein, Jane Austen, Pablo Picasso. You can learn about how they organised their time and got their stuff, their creativity, their genius down on paper in the book. It is called Daily Rituals. Right, it's time to get back then to the second part of my conversation with David Devere. He is the author of the brand new book. It's called Tale of the Tigress. It is views on the road to gender equality. Uh, You find out about some of the big players in getting genders to be equal, how they've been successful, how they haven't throughout history. Uh, And we carry on our chat by facing the problem with this interview square in the face. He is a man writing a book on gender equality. Was he scared of that fact at all? Yeah, absolutely, and I was right to do so. Um, There have been some people that have made the assumption, they've seen the title, they, they see the words gender equality, although written 
smallish on the cover. They've seen that and they've seen a male name as the author and they've immediately thought it's someone having a go at feminism without reading it, without finding out anything out about it and that is most definitely what it's not. I had one particular interview where the, the interviewer started off by saying it's a man that's written this book on gender equality, we can expect some real trouble here. And that was before the interview started. I say, it just needs people to talk about it and be sensible, open, not feel threatened. You can't be right, you can't be wrong. But interestingly, one of the things I found out was a lot of women were actually scared of the word feminism and what it represented to them. So a lot of them were feeling that a feminist was someone that was militant, aggressive, and wanted really for men to be, if not obliterated, certainly sidelined. And the vast majority of women I spoke to, whilst they wanted gender opportunities to be more equal, they certainly didn't want domination and they felt they felt vulnerable around the word feminism. I don't think we will ever be equal i think we will be and should be of equal value which is a very different thing but certainly from from the perspective of what i have heard and seen and talking to people i i think a lot of women do not want to have power over men they don't want to obliterate men in their ideal world they would like everyone to get on it's a bit like this yin and yang thing, that the two parts fit together well and are mutually supportive, not that they clash and cause problems. But that's not an easy place to get to. We've been around for thousands of years and we still haven't got it right. The way we as men work and react and the way that women do has been determined by the way we have been for thousands of years. The, if you think now of someone, if you think of two people, one is learning gymnastics, the other one is learning weightlifting. As you do those things, you train your muscles, your mind, your balance, and all the rest of it as you are learning that skill. At the same time that you're doing that, it is actually altering what's happening in your mind. One of the things we've learnt is that there's a thing called neural plasticity, which means the mind is capable of changing. For instance, the, the person doing weightlifting, they learn when they want to do the snatch, how they do it, how they position themselves, and that sends messages to the brain, and the brain tells them whether they're right. Well, if that's happening there at that level, if we start changing our attitude towards gender equality, and talk to each other and allow each other to have these thoughts, then that's going to feed back into the brain and create a neural pathway that perhaps wasn't there before. And the more that happens, maybe the more we'll change. Your second and third chapters, I think, in the book, uh, as I say, quite extensive looks on big players on the gender equality scene through history. We're talking about all sorts of people. We've got uh, Queen Victoria in there. Yeah. You've got the Pankhursts in there. How did you know who to include, where to start with that? I suppose it was that those that I found in my research. And there, there are a limited number because you have to remember that history has traditionally been written by men or uh, written by people that men have paid 
to write it. Those men have been powerful people. They have been uh, strong people in a community, um, and they have controlled what happens. There's very little that has been written, relatively this is, by women. I do give examples in there of things that have been written by women, but quite a few of the women actually had to write as though they were not women uh, before their stuff was accepted, and then when it was, they they could actually come out a bit about it. When did the idea of, of the imagery of the tigress kind of come into your mind? Um... Well, I always thought that the information, that that chapter at the end that you talk about, uh, about the tail of the tigress, the story that, you know, if you're holding on to the tail of the tigress, you've got a choice of two options. Either you let it go and there's a chance that the tiger will turn back and bite you, or you hang on and you're in for a bumpy ride. And that's how it is with, I felt, with the information in the book. And also, I see women, and I talk about it in the book, as the the tigress being the the true ruler of life's jungle because they are you know women create children they keep them inside them they have a relationship with them when they're born they have the relationship that carries right on through school where most of them are women uh, until the child is 11 or 12 look at relationships who chooses the house who chooses the furniture the hard furnishings, the soft furnishings, where you go on holiday, who's coming for Christmas, who's not. You know, that's all women. And yet so many women say that they're powerless, they don't control anything. So it's a fascinating argument, and we need to talk about it. But there's a page of stats in the middle of the book, uh, and it looks at degree courses. The degree courses end up with, with higher paid salaries on, upon graduation, and they're predominantly male. And then on the flip of that page, you've got the reverse of that, and we see what's coming. Um, the degree courses that end up with the lowest paid jobs are almost all female. What does, I don't know, an eight-year-old girl do now um, to try and start off uh, on a level playing field with men? Well, that playing field has already tilted because um, the education for girls just didn't exist a hundred years ago or hardly existed. Those that were educated, it would perhaps only be till eight and then they'd be working. In recent years, we've had big government drives of equality of opportunities in education for girls. And that's quite interesting because it's women that have caused this to come about but the way they cause it to come about is by lobbying MPs to change the laws. Most MPs are men. So they've actually managed to get into Parliament and change men's perception so that men will bring in laws that will benefit females as against males. So that has been happening and that has been working well such that the Russell Group of universities, who are the, the, the people in charge of the top group of universities, are now worried that there are so few young men on many of their courses and that those that are there aren't performing as well as the women. I mean, we have, for instance, at the moment, more women GPs in um, general practice than we have men. We have more female vets than we have men. So it is changing. It is. It's just that no one talks about it much. Um, and this is back to my old banging the drum. I think we should. So, David, when your publisher sent through your bio about you 
a little blurb. Um, one line really jumped out at me. It says, he worked in a Met Police as an armed officer, uh, designed boats, and went from being a property millionaire to a homeless bankrupt in a matter of weeks when the banking crisis hit in 2007. Now, that's a lot to go on in one person's life. And a lot of wildly different, quite passionate things to be doing. How have you managed to refocus your energy so many times? I suppose it's one of those things that once you get in something and you learn how to do it, um, and you have the opportunity to do something else, you think, right, fine, I've learned about that. That's quite interesting. But it's, it's a great thing because it helps you have a better perspective. Had I been doing the same job from the time I left school right the way through to now, my perspective would be very narrow. Now, I think it's made me a lot more, I don't know, able to accept the differences between people. So it might seem kind of mean-spirited of me. Uh, I've got to focus on one of these just because it, what, it has not happened in my life so far or anyone I know's life. Talk to me about going from a property millionaire to a homeless bankrupt almost overnight. Essentially, I had another um, business and I was taking money out of the um, property business to use in this other business, which was a very sensible move. And then because things were happening in the banking crisis, the bank decided to stop me having access to my money. For what reason, who knows? Um, And that was stopped cash flow and it went down so quickly you couldn't just couldn't believe it uh, again slightly mean spirited but how homeless were you well i spent time living in the back of the van yeah in a sleeping bag lying on the floor a one burner gas ring with a uh, a little what's called a milk pan i mean my my hot meal of the day was usually putting water in that pan buying a tin of um a curry or something like that, heating that up, standing that up in the water, boiling that, and just as it was getting hot, putting a boil in the bag, rice next to that until it heated, and then tipping it out onto a plastic plate and eating that. And my ablutions were from a um, a bucket, so I would literally have a standing shower in a bucket and use municipal toilets. It was that bad. How did you make your way out of that situation? Well... I I went mad for a few months, of course, which is hardly surprising. Um, and then you realise you have to do something. No one would employ you at this stage because, you know, you're a bankrupt, you've done this, that and the other. And that's when I had time. I had a laptop, I got these notes and I thought, I'm going to do something with it. And that's where the beginning of that book started. And that's why we're talking about now because the period from 2008 to now has been the gestation period for the book that is it then thank you so much to david devere uh, for taking the time to chat to me about his brand new book how he wrote it it is called tale of the tigress views on the road to gender equality uh, if, you, if you're interested in, in that kind of thing and you're fascinated uh, by how we've got to the position we are now where it's all at the fore where things are finally starting to change 
I absolutely recommend you pick up a copy of his book. And thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show at all, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at WritersPod. You can send us an email, writersroutine at gmail.com. The most important thing that you can do, though, is to tell everyone you think that might be interested in writing, that might have an idea in them, that's fascinated by creativity, to listen to the podcast. And you can even tell people that you don't know to listen to the show. Uh, Leave us a review on the iTunes podcast store. Right, next week, we are chatting to an ex-copper who turned his experiences of life in the force into a best-selling crime series. We'll see you there next week on The Writer's Routine. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.